Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your guest host for this week, Jason Rosenbaum. Chris McDaniel is on assignment. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis. And... Marshall Griffin. And our very special guest... Representative Clem Smith. Thank you very much for for joining us today. But before we get into any hard-hitting questions, tell us a little bit about the district that you represent and what it encompasses in St. Louis County. Okay, I represent the 85th district in St. Louis County. Uh, It's comprised of about 25 different municipalities. It's the area around the uh, University of Missouri-St. Louis. So a rough border would be um, uh, Interstate 70 is the northern border, uh, St. Charles Rock Road, southern. Woodson Road is the western border, and the city of St. Louis is my eastern border. And we were talking in the elevator. You're you're one of the many legislators over the year that has worked for the Boeing Corporation, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yes. I've been at Boeing about five years now. What do you do? I'm an aircraft assembly mechanic, so I work on the uh, F-18 project. Whoa. Nice. So okay. he, this is probably the handiest person we've had on our show as far as the guests go. <laughs> so you have a security clearance, too, I assume, right? I, I do. Yeah, well, that's I can't good. talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> I can't even I can't even hang a flagpole holder on my house, let alone put together a F eighteen. So I'm very impressed. By yeah, that I, representative. yeah, yeah. I uh, covered the F eighteen way back in the early '80s when they were trying to get the approval in um, in Washington, and so yeah, it's it's a plane that's been around for quite a while. Can you talk a little bit about yourself, aside from the fact that you work for Boeing? How you got into politics? What prompted you to do this? Well, I kind of came through the alley. I'm, I'm not from a political family or have any close political ties or anything like that. It was just when I was a kid, my dad always taught me you have to have an opinion and you have to be part of the process if you want to enact change. So uh, that's how it happened. I worked for Chrysler before Boeing uh-huh. for about 13 years, and we had a uh, political action committee. That I would volunteer from. Uh, actually, my political mentor, a guy by the name of Glenn Coggy, helped me out a whole lot. And from that, we'd work on different campaigns, knock doors. Actually, started knocking doors in Jefferson County. Wow! Uh, so uh, I, I got I got the knack for it there, and uh, it was an easy transition. It was just the uh, position came open in the area I moved into, and uh, through all this work with politics and policy. Uh, Got some good relationships, and they helped me out. I was just going to ask before we got into that 2010 race, are you from North County or are you from um, elsewhere in the St. Louis area? I'm from the west side of St. Louis. So I grew up over on a street called Cates, 5,500 blocks. So I was a city kid, and I just— Do you know which ward you grew up in? It's uh, Frank Williamson Jr. Okay. In his ward. Okay. So I think that's the 26th ward, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it used to be Clay's ward way back. The Elder Clay. uh, Irving. Irving. Yeah, yeah, Irving Irving Clay, Clay, and before that it was uh, uh, Bill Clay Sr. I always like to ask because my grandfather grew up in the 22nd Ward, which is very close to that ward. So I always like uh, asking people which ward they grew up in. Now, now that 2010 race is actually, I think, your only race where you had opposition in the Democratic primary, and it was to replace former Representative Don Calloway, who was running for state Senate at the time. It was a pretty hot-button, contentious race, if I'm not mistaken. Is that a fair recollection of that. Yes, there was a lot going on. What did you learn in that contest? I learned in that race that um, people can say anything during campaigning, (laughs) and there's not much that you can do about it. Uh, So they can, you know, bring up things or even the smallest thing, something that you may see as minute, uh, can become a major issue, and a person may use that to try to disqualify you. 
And who did you run against in that campaign? There was a gentleman by the name of uh, Henry I. Winifu. Yes, the mayor of Uplands Park, if uh, I'm not former, mistaken. Yes. I, and, I believe, is, he, is he the former mayor now? Yeah, they just had municipal elections and they uh, flipped over. And then there was a gentleman by the name of Chris Bo- Bovenlo. Mm-hmm. And he was out of Pasadena Hills. He was a uh, older person at yeah. the time. Yes. So I believe he was your main competition, though. Yes. So, but it I, got a little tricky when uh, Henry got in the race because, uh, unfortunately, we're not as uh, past some racial issues as we should be. And uh, sometimes yeah. you get that because uh, Chris Bovenlow was a Caucasian gentleman. And then sometimes normally what happened was if you have two people of the same race in a race, uh, they would kind of split the vote and then the other person – with, with, this is traditional St. Louis This politics. is traditional St. Louis. In some ways, that might have happened with the Rory Ellinger race in that, that particular cycle as well. Yes, the, if you look at the numbers, you'll, you'll kind of see that there. Rory's great, though. He, he served the district well. But um, in, in that time in the 71st district, which it was at that time, uh, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, we're going to talk about an issue that is – important to your district, the the school transfer bill, so-called school transfer bill. And it's important because your district encompasses almost all of the Normandy school district, which is unaccredited. It has been in the news for the last few months because, because of the 1993 transfer law. Thousands or hundreds of students have transferred out of there to other schools has put the district in a very perilous financial situation. And you were one of the ones who was most outspoken last week against the transfer bill that was approved by the General Assembly. Of course, I covered that last news conference that a number of Democrats, including yourself, had that Friday morning, and you did not mince any words about your um, criticisms of that bill, which you said was basically a voucher bill. I mean, that's what you called it. Uh, Do you want to talk about your concerns about the bill and what you think may or may not, what or what you think needs to be, needs to happen now? Um, of course. Um, no, I, I did not like what uh, the bill turned out to be. Uh, the people in the Normandy School District were led to believe that it was going to be something that actually helped the district. And by the time it got out of conference committee, it was nothing more uh, than a voucher bill. And, and that's what I'll continue to call it is the voucher bill. What is troubling the Normandy School District is the financial aspect of the transfer. Uh, you've got uh, different tuition rates. Uh, most of which were which was more than what the Normandy School District was playing. Uh, so you've got all this money going out, and then you've got a little bit left for the students that did not transfer, and that became an issue. In the House version of the Senate bill, uh, there was a seventy percent cap that was put uh, in the bill, and that was that could have helped Normandy. Somewhere in conference, that was stripped, and then it went to essentially uh, it's up to the receiving district to figure out what they want to take for these students. That doesn't help Normandy. That doesn't help Riverview. Uh, there's another component about the, uh, even the voucher piece doesn't help. Uh, the voucher piece, for example, you've got the Normandy school district. There's about $4,000 in local, uh, the local tax levy that would be eligible for, I guess, this voucher uh, for a non-sectarian school within the district boundaries of the Normandy school district. Well, there is no school and $4,000 can't get you much. Uh, did some calling around, looked at some of these uh, schools, tuition, eighteen to $20,000. So right. what is a $4,000 voucher going to get you? Uh, not to mention that the school district has 90% free or reduced lunch. So you've got kids who cannot essentially have issues paying for lunch, but all of a sudden their parent is supposed to come up with 
$10,000 more to go with this $4,000 voucher. So uh, it did not and does not help the Normandy School District at all. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I've done some reporting on the municipalities that make up the Normandy District about uh, city-county merger concerns. And I one of the things that I got a sense of is, is there may be this perception that the Normandy District is just all impoverished municipalities, which is not even close to the truth. It actually has some pretty affluent municipalities, Pasadena Hills, Greendale, Pasadena Park, Belnor. I would classify those all as fairly affluent to middle-class communities. Is a problem that you've seen in in this entire issue that Maybe some of the people that live there aren't sending their kids to Normandy schools and might be sending them to private schools instead. And if so, do you think that this bill might have done anything to deter them from doing so in any respect? I mean, you did have parents that um, normally did not send their kid to the Normandy school district, and then they enrolled their kid uh, or their, their children to take advantage of, of the, the transfer, transfer program. And these are people that were homeowners that had lived there for years, so... I, I kind of get it. They've been paying taxes. Then you had individuals who moved in within weeks of hearing about this transfer opportunity, uh, never had an established residency and never enrolled in school. And then they took advantage of the, of the so transfer. So they could send their child to what, St. Francis Howell or where? Yes, or wherever the transfer would take them, whatever they saw in their mind to be a better school district. But uh, going back to those communities, no, you've had a lot of them step up uh, and, and kick in, especially in Belnor, Pasadena mm-hmm. Hills, Pasadena Park. Uh, but you do have a divide there. The district I represent is not 100 percent black, but the Normandy School District is like 98 percent black. So something is happening with some of these other students. So you don't feel like, let's say, I think one of the hopes of the, the so-called private option is maybe more non-sectarian schools form in these districts, and maybe there's more opportunities, because I don't believe there is a non-sectarian school in Normandy. I think there's one in Riverview Gardens, if I'm not mistaken, right? Right. There's a Storman Academy, I believe, in a Riverview Gardens, not one in the Normandy district. But uh, the more and more I think about it, I don't think this is about Normandy. I think they use the children as an excuse to mm-hmm. uh, go in and sort of push this voucher. But you don't think, for example, that if this goes to its full conclusion, that it might make people in some of the more economically disadvantaged municipalities like Wellston or Uplands Park have the opportunity that people in Greendale and Pasadena Hills have right now? Well, it's hard to to kind of figure that in because the school doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. you know. uh, Well, and and if you're talking about cost, as you just mentioned, if the the tuition is, I mean, let's say put it at the lower end, let's say it's 10 or 12, still, um, if they're only going to get three or 4,000 under the voucher plan, it doesn't really, I mean. Because it is a local levy. It's not the state levy. Yeah. So what the critics are saying, like yourself, is that, well, it doesn't help because they'd have to come up with these thousands of bucks and when they can't even afford lunch. Uh, so how did this come about that that provision got put in? Uh, I've talked to several members of the conference committee, um, including budget House Budget Chair Rick Stream and uh, Senator Maria Chappelle-Nadal, and I haven't gotten a clear picture yet of who exactly was responsible. Uh, Marshall, do you know? Are you talking about the private option? Yes. The private option. Yes. Wasn't that part of Chappelle Nadal's initial bill, if I'm uh, not mistaken? Was, I believe right. it was okay. part of the initial bill. And it went from there to several, especially in the Senate, which the Senate was the driving force behind the compromise bill. You have five Correct. senators, three House members, 
And, um, you know, and the House got a few things they wanted, but the, the Senate pretty much dictated the, uh, the terms of that uh, compromise bill. And one of the things that Ed Emery said was, this bill does not go anywhere without the private option. It's so, dead. So aside from the private option, though, they also stripped out any state money for transportation. They that was done. Who the, did that? I be, I want to. I don't know the actual senator that did that. I was in and out of the committee meetings on that day, uh, checking on some other things. But uh, it was made fairly clear, at least with the way Rick Stream uh, presented it to us, because he he didn't like that. No, presentation. no, he, he made that not. clear to me on and, Friday morning too, before the final vote. But the the general consensus was that this might make the uh, this might make it a little bit more palatable um, as far as uh, if. If the uh, if the transportation money is taken off the table, then perhaps it would be a little bit less of a financial hardship for Normandy. That's how it was presented. Yeah. Now, I, if I'm not mistaken, you and Senator Spell Nadal have been fairly close politically for years. If I'm not mistaken, is that a fair assessment? Yes. Okay. So, how was there this great divide between not only you and her, but a lot of House Democrats? And members of the Senate Black Caucus over this bill. What what caused that divide, in your opinion? I, I don't know where it came from um, on, on this issue. It just came over like we we were accepting the bill that came over from the Senate. Okay. Uh, there was a campaign going on in the Normandy School District saying, "Hey, that there was going to be a bill. It's going to have some stuff you don't like, but it's going to help you." Um, and that's what a lot of people bought into. But that bill had the voucher piece in it. So it comes over to the House and, you know, a lot of the members are looking at it and saying, no, we don't like this voucher piece. But, you know, you had members in the Senate that had signed on to it. And then eventually the House version, which was better than the Senate version that came over, went to conference. Even the provision that was going to cut Normandy out of Desi's plan to merge it with another Which I believe district. was your amendment, was your if amendment. I'm not mistaken. Right. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, if if, okay. you, if you could. Okay, no problem. Uh, there was an amendment, uh, Amendment Number 10, that was on the bill that would have, uh, well, right now, uh, Desi has the power to lapse a district and then merge it with another district. Mm-hmm. Um, the people of Normandy did not want that to happen. Okay. It happened when Wellston was merged yes. with Normandy. Correct. And uh, we saw, not saying that the Wellston children, which are great, was the cause, but it was just very interesting that a provisionally accredited district would, would take a, uh, a failed district. So this same possibility, there was rumors out there that this may happen with Jennings. Jennings is provisionally accredited. So we just wanted to stop that from happening and allow the reformation plan that the community school district put together implement that. And an amendment was offered. uh, It was accepted. Went to conference. It was stripped out. And that made me believe, like, no, this has nothing to do with these children or this district. This bigger piece in this bill is the voucher, and that's what people want. Now, through her public statements, talking with Dale Singer, the St. Louis American, others, Senator Chappelle Nadal, who has been a pretty outspoken opponent of Rex Singfeld throughout the few years she was in the legislature, she once stood up at a luncheon and said that she was her his biggest enemy. Actually, she said, "I think the reason she put this in was to make the rest of the bill more palatable for you know it to pass and to ultimately help." some of the 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 the, the school because Normandy is in her Senate district as well um, do you do you think that was a good strategy on her part or and why do you why do you think it wasn't uh, I don't I'm not in the Senate so I can't kind of go into those inner workings but to me it wasn't a good strategy I actually live and pay taxes in the Normandy school district I live next door to people that attend the Normandy school district and that's not what they wanted so I'm expressing what the people wanted that I live with. Uh, I don't know where that idea came from. And then that kind of leads me to believe 
that uh, if it wouldn't have passed without vouchers, then there's some people that just didn't care what happened to these two districts. So what happens now in your view? And I'm interested in Marshall's take on this as well. Um, in my view, I hope that the governor actually vetoes this bill and calls us back into special session. Have you heard anything? I mean, um, he's been talking the last few days, but yeah, I'm interested he, in he, what he, you've been hearing. He has basically signaled he's going to veto this bill because of the, the private option aspect of it. But continue. Right. And that's the same thing. I haven't gotten anything firm from his office saying, you know, this is going to happen and then we're coming back in a special session. But there's a, a growing coalition I know of uh, of Democrats, of people in the area that are pushing for this uh, to happen because if he calls us back in, he can define the uh, parameters of what we're coming in and just address the transfer issue and not vouchers. And I know, I'm not sure what the chances of that are happening are because you, normally there has to be consensus uh, between the Republican lawmakers and, of course, the Democratic governor, as you well know, on anything before they call him back into session. And I'm at this point, I see the Republican uh, leaders in both chambers digging in their heels and insisting that vouchers uh, have to stay in the bill, that that private option has to stay in. And that leads me to, I think, a really important question here. If they call a special session and nothing comes of it and the status quo remains, are you worried that, you know, Normandy is going to cease to exist as a school district, that St. Louis City might lose accreditation and cause a whole bigger problem there? Is there any concern that vetoing this bill may cause other unintended consequences because something else might not just pass? Uh, no, because to me, the bill doesn't do anything. It's nothing but a voucher bill. I mean, there's some stuff in there about individual accreditation of schools, which is good. But in Normandy, you've got two elementary schools, I think, that would be accredited. But you've got one that wouldn't be the middle school and then the high school that wouldn't be. So I don't think there's anything in this bill that's going to dramatically change the outcome of uh, some of these districts because it's the financial part. But I think the voucher part would benefit St. Louis because in St. Louis City, you have a similar dynamic. Uh, St. Louis population, I believe it's about 50-50. But the school district isn't 50-50. St. Louis public school. So so there's a lot of people that have children that may be able to grab whatever local money, and that's a benefit to them. I mean, that's absolutely true. There are a bunch of non-sectarian private schools in the city of St. Louis, and that would be a possibility for people that are in private school right now to take advantage of. And and if I can interject, there's at least I don't think that Normandy will need to be worried about uh, being um, absorbed into another school district, at least for this year, Um, basically because of uh, some news that's coming over this morning from Jefferson City. The uh, State Board of Education voted unanimously to to approve DESE recommending that Normandy be replaced, the school board's being replaced with a state-run school board. Now, that may not be good news for Normandy. But uh, it at least signals that there won't be any lapsing of the Normandy district, at least this coming school year. It looks like it'll, they'll have a, a state-appointed board similar to what the city of St. Louis, Louis has had. So it's, but it would uh, keep the Normandy school district intact. Now, there's one other aspect of the private option I wanted to ask you before we move on. It designates that in order for the private option to become active, the school district would have to vote on it. And if the school district is still unaccredited after three years, even after a no vote or no action, the private option would become active. In your view, if a school district ends up voting yes for a private option, then why should anybody who doesn't live in that school district 
care if they want vouchers or private schools. I think it's just starting. Uh, it's almost like a gateway to full-blown vouchers. Uh, you can see that with the vote count. I believe there was 24 or 25 Republicans, mainly from rural areas, uh, some from St. Charles, uh, that decided to vote no because public, in their mind, public money should not be used for private education. Now, I know you brought up at the news conference, and there were some other people who mentioned this as well, that because the way the bill is worded, the voucher, I mean, the uh, private option was only going to be available in the St. Louis area and in Kansas City. Yes. And there were some who questioned whether or not that was, okay, aside from uh, there is a, a, a constitutional prohibition to public money being used for private schools. It's now in the state constitution. I believe it's called the Blaine Amendment. Co- correct. But separate from that, there were some who claimed that this provision of the bill was unconstitutional or that it would be tossed out in court because it only allowed it in certain parts. And I think you said at the news conference that um, that you believe that they put that in the bill because rural Republicans wouldn't vote for it. So, I mean, do you want to talk about your your view about why it was allowed in certain areas and not in others? I mean, flat out, I think it's some sort of experiment to see. um, Let's do this trial run to see if it works here. Uh, The negative part about it and the way I look at it is, uh, you know, I read a lot of different books. I see a lot of different things about experimentation in this country and and how it happens. I think it happens with some charter schools. They're some of the most segregated schools in the country. Uh, And then you've got this voucher option that you want to use in these predominantly uh, African-American areas, uh, St. Louis Public, uh, Kansas City, uh, St. Louis County. But why not anywhere else? If you're pushing this and saying it's such a great and grand idea, why not apply it to all children in all districts? Because you've got some rural areas that are in trouble, too, once this new testing of the scores come down. So to me, it's, it's experimentation, and I don't like it, and the people where I'm at don't like it. So let's move on to a topic that might be near and dear to your heart as well. Um, This session, there was a lot of talk about anti-union sorts of bills, so-called right to work, so-called paycheck paycheck protection. None of those ended up passing. Um, There was actually a vote on right to work, which, Joe, please explain what right to work is because I am terrible at explaining what it is. Okay. Uh, Right to work, of course, and that's the term that that the proponents use, uh, would bar unions or employers from requiring everyone – in a bargaining unit to pay dues or fees if a majority have voted to join a union. Right. Now, the so-called Paycheck Protection Bill, which was a separate bill but actually was related, would have barred um, payroll deduction. And these two measures, which have been passed in some other states, talking Michigan, talking Indiana, uh, there was an attempt in Ohio, um, has did a lot to really hurt the uh, bottom line of labor as far as them having money. So some critics claim that this is all about cutting the political money. Uh, Why do you think, I mean, it did pass the House. uh, Right to Work did. Well, it didn't technically pass the House. No, I know. It received a first perfection vote, but never received a third vote. Okay, sorry to interrupt. 78 votes, but it needed 82 to be sent over to the Senate, they never did get those extra four votes, um, even with all the even with 108 Republicans. I'm interested in your take on what you think happened and why, and what do you think what this means for um, the next session or two? 
what I think happened is people in most of the legislators really don't want it. I know there was a lot of pressure that was applied on the Republican end. Uh, but Who there was, was applying the pressure? Uh, I think it was from their leadership. I think it was from whoever, um, you know, the the, the, indiv- the guys at the top, because there were a group of guys at the top, that were pushing it down on their other members. Uh, for example, uh, you've got St. Charles, for example. Um, a lot of the employees at Boeing that are union members live in St. Charles. Mm-hmm. Uh Red County, but the, their people can't. It's not in their best interest to vote uh, for this because it could ultimately impact the bottom line of these workers. Um, I think there's a national trend to do this. I think a lot of it is to defund uh, a lot of the political campaigns of of, of Democrats because uh, the Democratic Party and, and, and labor uh, organizations seem to be on you know the same page with, with most of these things. But it seems like labor has been supporting some Republicans lately. If you go back to 2012, there were some Republicans that were endorsed by the AFL-CIO over Democrats. The be- biggest example is Lemke getting the endorsement over Sifton. And there were other examples yeah, as well. state Senate race in South County. So do you think that this is kind of like what is the term? Spiting their nose against their face or something? Like cutting that? off their nose to spite their <laughs> yeah, face. Cutting off their nose to spite their <laughs> face. There, there's always been a history uh, because uh, organized labor isn't the Democratic Party. We're two separate entities, even though a lot of times uh, there have we been fall some studies that about 30% of the rank and file actually vote Republican. And if I can uh, make one addition to your point, Representative. Um, when you were mentioning St. Charles, a, a lot of uh, pro-union, Republic, pro-union and a Republican area, um, one, of their le- one of their representatives, Ann Zare, from St. Charles, is one of the most outspoken Republicans uh, who opposes right-to-work. actually spoke at a rally uh, earlier this session uh, condemning right-to-work efforts. And one of your colleagues at Boeing, Doug Funderburg also voted against it as well. I don't know if you actually work in the same area. No, no, we're because like 15,000 people yeah. out there. Yeah, so Bo- but the, you were both Boeing. But, but continue. Right. But, but, continue. You, but then you have to look at, you know, this push for right to work. Like, where has it benefited? It hasn't benefited Kansas. It didn't benefit Oklahoma when it happened. Actually, more businesses left. I don't know where the benefit is. Uh, a lot of people are like, well, look at some of these southern states and they're right to work and they're getting business. But you also have the state putting up billions of dollars to build facilities. For example, Boeing is in South Carolina. Yeah, they're right to work, but the state of South Carolina pretty much said, we'll build the facility, build the roads, you don't have to pay taxes. I kind of look at right to work as like, you know, some people live in these neighborhoods. You have a neighborhood association. You pay your fees, grass gets cut, it looks beautiful. But if you get two or three people who don't want to pay, but then they're benefiting from everything else, like the union contract, you negotiate these wages, uh, you do all of this, but then you have some people that say, hey, well, we don't want to pay for that representation. That's not fair. They don't actually have to work at the place that's unionized. They can go down the street and find another place to work. Yeah, or if I believe they could still – they still have to – if they don't want to join a union, they still have to pay the representation fee, if yes. I'm correct, not mistaken. Correct, yes. But they can still opt out of joining a union yeah, if they, they yeah, want to. Called, yeah, there's something called the Beck Amendment. This goes back to a Supreme Court ruling of several decades ago so that there is a, a portion of the union dues that people who vote – who don't want to join the union don't pay depending on how much um, – of that particular union, how much money they use that goes to political activities. So the money that goes for political activities is, let, I mean, just let's say if you if your due is five dollars 
and they say that 20% goes political activities, so you pay $4. I mean, that's I'm just using yeah. that as a simplistic example. Uh, Marshall, what was your take on why some of this stuff really didn't get anywhere when people thought it definitely would? A lot of it had to do with something that happened on the very last week of session, uh, the first night of the last week in the Missouri Senate. Um, the the Senate the, the Senate leaders wanted to advance a couple of bills that they considered very high priority, but also considered uh, having a realistic chance of becoming law. And those were the 72-hour waiting period for abortions and, um, gosh, my mind is escaping me with the other Early voting. Early voting. Early voting. Thank you. Thank you. Which is a proposed constitutional amendment which would allow early voting but only for six days and only during uh, daylight hours. And it would legally trump the uh, Citizens Initiative version of early voting. At least that's what they said. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure a court will decide decide on that, but continue. But Okay, so basically the the Senate Republicans wanted to advance those two issues more than – more than any others because of the realistic chances, they say, of it, of it coming true. And they had to give up something for it. And what they gave up was the Paycheck Protection Bill and the, um, the, the proposed constitutional amendment to require voto, uh, photo IDs for voters at the polls. Right. And that's what happened to Paycheck Protection. That's why it did not get pushed. And, uh, and maybe perhaps also why the Senate chose not to take up uh, right to work. Yeah, I think that would have faced a filibuster. The reason I'm asking this question is you are not facing any Democratic opposition, I believe. Unless you get defeated by a random independent candidate, you're going to be back in 2015, 16. Do you think there's still going to be this emphasis on these things like right to work or paycheck protection? Or do you think when uh, likely Speaker Deal comes along, he may not focus on those for some reason? I think it's going to be business as usual. I think – those topics are going to come back up because, uh, as you just said, in the Senate it was using used as a, a bargaining tool. Why not use it every year uh, to get something or get a piece of uh, their agenda going up, uh, going forward? But I think it'll be it'll be used. I don't think there'll be any any change. Now let's get to the, this. Is I always say this, and I always cringe when I say this. Let's get to the politically part of the politically speaking podcast. For you a mean second. we haven't been there yet? I, I think yeah, we, yeah. We, we okay. Although we'll be brief. We'll be brief because we are running short on time a little bit. So while you are not facing any opposition, and while a lot of your other colleagues, I guess throughout St. Louis City and County, aren't facing very credible opposition. There, there. I guess there are a couple of things percolating in the primary and the general, which are of interest. Yes, there's particularly nasty. Well, probably, arguably, this side of the state, probably the most, the nastiest primary fight is um, for county executive between uh, Democratic incumbent Charlie Dooley and his fellow Democrat and challenger, Councilman Steve Stinger. Now, while both candidates have tried to keep race out of it, I'll be blunt. Um, uh, county executive Dooley is African American. Uh, there is some people who believe that based on voting patterns that have been present in the St. Louis area for decades, that it could be uh, it could be an underlying issue. I'm interested in your take on this as um, uh, a state rep, someone who is on you're on board with uh, County Executive Dooley. How do you think some of this is going to play out over the summer, and will it cause be damaging to Democrats going into the general election, whoever wins? Uh, yes, I think it'll be uh, damaging. I think this is a, a fight that didn't have to happen in the primary, but you saw uh, some groups, uh, organized labor, uh, for example, uh, go a different way uh, as opposed to going with the individual that's been sitting there helping them for years and years. Uh, but I, I think it's going to come down to, to, to North County. It's You're going to see what you normally see 
in in the South area. Uh, I think uh, the county executive has a lot of Dooley has a lot of uh, support in the mid county area and uh, up north. But I think it's going to really rely on that turnout. Uh, pretty much north of seven. How do you get people to turn out for primary? Because primary turnout in St. Louis County sometimes isn't that great. And, and in the northern part of the county, black or white, the turnout hasn't been great for a while. It, what's going to be done to try to change that? With this one, I've been seeing a lot of uh, movement from the Dooley campaign. And I'm, I'm a supporter, so maybe I'm, I'm, I'm viewing this a little differently. I haven't seen a lot of stinger people uh, where I live, but a lot of Dooley people uh in the neighborhood, knocking doors now. I mean, pushing the campaign forward. So I think there's a, a very active uh, campaign going. It's going to go from, you know, it started months ago, but continuing to the day of the election. I would hope you'd be active in kind of your district because that's actually where he started his political career. He was the former mayor of, of Northwoods. I think that's where a lot of his political base and history is. And it does seem like a, a, a vibrant turnout in that area, as well as winning mid-county and other places seems like it's going to be crucial in this contest because South County is kind of split between um, Republican and Democrat. West County may have some Republicans that that cross over, but I'm not really sure how much that's going to happen. It seems like those two factors, both whoever wins places like Clayton, University City, Creve Corps, the mid-county areas that you mentioned— as well as turnout in the respective bases is probably going to decide this race. Is that a fair assessment? No, I, I definitely think so. But uh, up north, there's there's some people that are trying to figure out, like, why why now? What did the county executive do that was so bad uh, that, you know, warrants this this opposition? And everybody has the right to, uh, to run. I mean, that's just everybody's right. But why do you that. think labor has come out so against uh, the county executive? Well, parts of labor. I mean, let's be clear. Yes. They were very outspoken about it about a year ago and I actually did some the early stories on it. They, they're kind of hedging their bets a little bit. You know, I mean, some of them are for Stanger. They're contributing to Stanger, but they're not that vocal yet. Of course, you know, we've well, got the county prosecutor, but McCullough, who's behind but, Stanger. Well, yeah, but what do you think has prompted some elements right. of the labor union to vehemently oppose Dooley this time around? Um, I heard it was um, a, a, a variety of different things, but one thing that was dealing with a, uh, a contractor, like one contractor in, in St. Louis County on a project, uh, but it was some issues with the contractor. I think that some of the building trades saw but uh, on the other side, that there needed to be some minority participation, and this was a minority contractor. So sometimes it's it's difficult uh, for minorities to to break into these different trades. Uh, it's it, it can be problematic, and I believe there was an issue with someone had to be hired. Uh, and I don't think this had anything to do with the county executive. I think this was the general contractor and that had to adhere to these requirements, and they on their own hired this person. So it wasn't like you know, uh, the county exec got on the phone and said, hey, you're going to get Bob over here. It was the general contractor because he's not sitting here looking at every now, contract. Now, besides ca- – oh, what were you going to say, Joe? Well, yeah, but now what's the fallout potentially going to be in November? Uh, let's say – I mean, regardless of who wins. Uh, could there be tensions that spill over until November? Uh, and looking ahead to 2016, I mean, there hasn't been an African-American – uh, statewide candidate in Missouri since 1994, Alan Weed. So I'm interested in your take on how this uh, contest might affect all that. I mean, there there may be some spillover because you've got some individuals thinking, um, um, you know, with this racial angle in, in the case, well, they may 
or may not vote for Dooley. And then come the November election, they can say, hey, something just happened here and not and choose not to do it uh, and opt not to vote. And then that would be a, an extremely bad race right there between uh, just say if it was Stinger and then you've got the Rick Stream. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got several Republicans, but Rick Stream, the budget chairman, is believed to be the front runner for the Republican nomination for county exec. Thank right. You. Yeah. So yeah. it could it could fall, uh, I think, a few different ways. Um, but it I don't think there should have been a challenge in the first place. But the, if there is, I think the uh, county executive will be a. Victorious. Now, one last question before we go. Are there any other state legislative or ballot initiatives that you're going to be watching this uh, either primary or uh, general election? One thing I wanted to see was something done with these red light cameras. We had a bill that was uh, <laughs> that was moving, but uh, it, it kind of stalled uh, in my area. Like I said, I've got all these cities and that can be problematic with a lot of the uh, speed cameras speed and cameras, red light yes. cameras. and. Nothing happened this year, so hopefully going forward next year. And perhaps you can um, blame the Senate for that as well. <laughs> it well, it also, got, got a very unfriendly amendment uh, the last week. Well, and also a lot of the lobbyists. I mean, a lot of the lobbyists who I know, Republican and Democrat. So are you are you pro-red light camera, pro-speed tr- speed camera, or anti? I'm, I'm pro-old-fashioned police work, mm-hmm. and that means pulling someone over, getting the felony arrest, and not a camera with a uh, radar duct tape to the top of it trying to say somebody's speeding and it's wild wild west because there's no requirements well we'll have to maybe in the next time we have you on we will moan about those for 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 longer but until then to close this out uh you can follow all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org um you can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow uh, Joe at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. You can follow Marshall at, at at Marshall G Report. And I don't. Do you have a Twitter? I don't because elected officials get in trouble when they have Twitter, and I, <laughs> and I, I have a low cyber footprint. Some, some of, it seems like some politicians love to spend time on Twitter. I'm not going to well, name any names. <laughs> I think you might be one of our first guests besides uh, uh, Elman, who yes. does not have a Twitter account. So I salute you for for uh, deciding not to take that terrible, terrible path. <laughs> until next week, uh, we thank you for, for listening as always. And until next week, so long.